and we've been watching this for for three years or so move from the kind of bottom of the internet as it were on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard being used by our politicians. I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter. Don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on them. QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm. Memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty stupid policy. To take the red pill, it offers a system, it puts sense on things, it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling. So maybe facts don't care about your feelings, but for QAnoners, it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts. Hello and welcome to Reactionary Digital Politics, a podcast series about the relationship of politics and political culture with digital communication and internet culture and with a particular interest in what's happening on the right-wing side of the political spectrum. This is episode one, How Did We Get Here? So who are we? Uh, I'm Alan Finlayson. I'm an academic specialising in politics and political theory. I'm Rob Topinka. I'm also an academic, but I specialise in media and culture. I'm Rob Gallagher. Uh, I'm also an academic, and I work on digital culture and literature. And I'm Sophie Ludkin. I'm a radio producer. Well, we've been working on a research project for three years now, uh, looking at politics and the internet and how it's changing everything, and we want to share what we found out. We've also interviewed a bunch of experts from different backgrounds, so it's not just us that people have to listen to, uh, and we've talked to people from different parts of the world to find out how the internet and politics looks from their point of view, and we want to share all of that uh, with you, our listeners. What we want to try and do is think a bit about how politics is changing because of the way our communications environment is changing, particularly think about how political ideas spread and get discovered these days and how that's changing the way everything happens. And then as an example of all that, we want to think in particular about things that have been animating and confusing people for a few years now, things with names like populism, the radical right, the far right, people thinking about Trump and his presidency, uh, conspiracy theories and so on, all that kind of stuff. They've been growing particularly well online there may be a connection between how digital communication and culture works and the ways in which those kinds of political ideas are spreading. So we're going to put all that together and try and make sense of how everything is changing in politics in the 21st century. So those are the goals of the series as a whole, but in terms of the specific goals for this episode, uh, we want to introduce the topic and think about how we got to uh, our present situation. We want to lay out some of the pieces of the puzzle that we'll be trying to put together over the eight episodes Um, And maybe put the current situation in a bit of context, identifying some of the converging histories that are at work in online and digital politics. There's a lot of seemingly disconnected uh, trends and phenomena here that are at work. Um, So basically we want to remind everyone that it's complicated, but it's also important. So how did we all get interested in this kind of stuff then? Rob? So for me, I, I write a lot about video games and gaming culture and the, uh, the Gamergate movement of 2014 was a, was a real wake-up call. So I was aware that uh, gaming culture isn't necessarily known for being politically progressive, um, but I was really surprised at the intensity of the vitriol and the abuse being meted out to uh, women in the industry, critics, designers and others. Uh, death threats, abuse, uh, but also I was quite shocked by how widespread the support seemed to be 
um, from kind of various areas of gaming culture. Uh, and I guess a lot of our interviewees um, now see this as a kind of flashpoint in what became the reactionary turn in digital politics. And we'll talk a lot more about it as we go along. What about you, American Rob? How did you get interested in this? Well, growing up in America, anywhere USA in the 90s, uh, I spent a lot of time online. And, you know, for me, the Internet used to be this kind of wild space where you could find anything. And I remember, you know, in my middle school library, we had one computer uh, connected to the Internet. And I remember when Alta Vista came out, it just blew my mind that you could kind of look up anything. And I remember I used to sit in there and look up just sort of random facts, like what, what is this country's primary export? And I just thought this was, was so cool. Uh, but I also remember, you know, sort of ending up on the kind of more disturbing side of the Internet, uh, websites like steakandcheese.com, which had a lot of kind of gross out and violent videos, uh, and also Reddit, which I've been a user of for, for almost 15 years, almost as long as it's been around. Uh, and I can remember, you know, there was, there's always been this kind of optimism about the Internet and how it connects us and how it can be democratizing. Meanwhile, I was on steakandcheese.com and Reddit and seeing a lot of racism, a lot of misogyny, a lot of sort of disturbing stuff. So I was, I was, as a researcher, became interested in these kind of this kind of clash between the way we sometimes talk about the internet and how great it is, and like what's actually on the internet. So I'm a bit, a bit older. Let's just leave it at that. So I kind of feel like I've got one foot in kind of digital media and one foot in in old media, really. Uh, and I feel very conscious of the disjuncture between those. But as someone who specialises in studying ideologies, the way people think about politics, how they come to believe in certain kinds of politics, how the way ideas flow and move and people persuade each other to join together and act politically together. Uh, I was interested in how the internet was doing that. I was watching things kind of happen, sort of casually, not really with a research eye to it. But then I noticed that some of the things I was seeing happening in what I thought were obscure corners of the internet uh, were happening in my classrooms too, that students were picking up on ideas and phrases and ways of thinking and talking about politics or understanding the kinds of books we were reading in class. They were getting those ideas from digital media. So I began to think, well, OK, this is something I need to try and understand a little bit better. And with that in mind, maybe a good place to start is with what students now think about the internet, how they use it. So we asked Sophie to go out, grab some students and ask them how they find out about politics. Absolutely. So I've chatted to some students about where they're encountering political debates, where they're getting their ideas from, whether that's different to how their friends or parents interact with politics uh, and how they're sharing their own opinions online. So I encounter political debates sort of probably mainly on social media. Like I see them a lot. So I see them rather than like say anything. I mainly use things on my phone, the BBC News app, Guardian app and the Times app. I don't use social media at all because I don't find it offers me anything. I mean, when I was young, I used to go on forums and that sort of thing before pre-social media. And I just remember how everything could descend into an argument about anything, whether it be football or politics. So I just thought I'm wasting my time here arguing with people who... I'm not going to change their opinion. They're not going to change my opinion. So why spend hours arguing with someone? You don't even know them. They don't know you. It's completely just, I'd rather waste my time doing other things. I encounter political ideas a lot online. I think that's where I engage with them most too. I still use traditional media, so TV and political shows and the news and the debate surrounding that tends to be with my family or whoever I'm watching TV with, but most of the debate um, and news and updates I engage with actually is online through Twitter and Reddit. So I don't have apps on my phone because I find them quite invasive. You know, when like you know people just pop up and it says like this has happened, this has happened, this has happened. But um, Instagram, 
like so international newspapers that put stories up on instagram with pictures i know a lot about australian politics because there's like youtuber who is quite funny he's like a comedian and also he's quite political as well i very occasionally buy paper radio sometimes but then again not very much i'd say the majority is yeah youtube and social media i tried to break the algorithm that we are all kind of subject to nowadays so I tend to be more on the right, but so I joined a load of left-wing groups, in particular this one, like uh, Nobody Likes a Tory, but it just made me really angry. Like every morning I'll get up and read it and it'd just be some nonsense and it just made me angry. So I tried to break the algorithm, but it was it was uh, didn't make me a very happy person, so I stopped. Even though people on Twitter represent a tiny percentage of the electorate in the United States or here or wherever, I think... For some reason, corporations and people, they take a lot of notice to what they say and like hashtags and things like that. So I do share some of my views online. I think I prefer Reddit because it feels more anonymous and I feel like I can be more honest on there. When I'm at home, my parents, you know, are quite regimented in what they do. So we'll watch the news every night. Like 6pm, BBC News goes on, George Allagai is there. But when I'm here at uni, there's this playlist on Spotify called Your Daily Drive, and it gives you like a mixture of news and, and music as well. So I get most of mine from that usually because there's like a Times daily briefing and then there's a few other things. In addition to that, it's kind of just like uh, Instagram, you know, like the, the main social media channels. I think digital platforms definitely have changed communication. I think the kind of conversations that you have online uh, opened up new opportunities to talk to people you might never have had the chance to have spoken to before. There are some conversations that the dialogue and the sort of structure you wouldn't really get in real life um, but you can get online most people are kind of stuck in this view of or, or this like left versus right kind of dichotomy views aren't shared as much as they used to be like before there is a loads of different types of newspapers you know you get your information from a variety of different places but now all these apps and these websites are geared towards keeping you looking at what you like so therefore you're just like the walls are too high and you can't see over them kind of thing. Um, so I think this created a, a, a huge divide, especially if you look in like the US, like there's no real, real center anymore. There's quite a lot of extremes on both sides. So I think those are really interesting clips. What I like about them in part is that they show it's not simple what's going on. The media environment that these young people live in, it isn't that they're all on social media, whereas everybody my age is reading the newspapers. There's a mixture of things that they're paying attention to television and radio but social media is also really central to how they're finding out about politics they mentioned reddit instagram youtube spotify which i have to say surprised me i didn't know spotify was a source for news and political opinion so they're taking all these different kind of sources interacting with them in different kinds of ways looking for different things but it's very very different to how people would have found out about news politics political ideas and arguments 20 years ago let alone 30 or 40 years ago one thing that struck me about that is, you know, one student said there's no center between left and right anymore. But but what stuck out for me is there's there's no media center either. There's no kind of, I mean, there's a sense, well, you know, you need to check in on the BBC sometimes. Uh, but people are getting 
uh, their news from Instagram, Spotify, an Australian YouTuber. There's kind of no authoritative center that's generating the information they're getting. But at the same time, they're aware that this is an issue, right? They're all pretty skeptical. Someone even said they wanted to break the algorithm. Most of them seem cautious about wanting to participate on social media unless it's in an anonymous space. So they're kind of, they're definitely aware of, uh, of the downsides of the media environment they're operating in. But because there's no center to it, it it's a little unclear how exactly you're supposed to uh, find your way in this system. Yeah, and there's an intuition and an understanding that maybe the algorithms don't have the public interest at heart so much as the platform's interests, but also maybe an uncertainty about how you navigate that, how you maybe reverse engineer or exploit those algorithms. Um, and interesting with regard to the Australian YouTuber that this person now happens to know about Australian politics because an internet personality they like happens to talk about it. They're not going looking for that news necessarily. But a couple of them also talked about how it feels, how it's very emotional, very contested, very argumentative space. We all know that, but I think it's important to stop and think about the way in which a lot of debate and discussion online is really driven by those feelings, anxiety, scepticism, and so forth. Yeah, the student who wanted to break the algorithm by following the No One Likes a Tory YouTube page, I think the algorithm probably liked what he was doing because it made him angry. It probably made him engage more. Uh, that anger feeds back in and, and he can get get more kind of uh, outrage videos served up to him. So the, the algorithm can always adjust to us and bring us in a, in a new way. And maybe a sense there that, that Twitter perhaps is overrepresented among journalists because of who uses that particular platform and its power as an agenda setting device and how that maybe doesn't necessarily correlate with the sites people actually use in their day to day lives. Yeah, it, it did sort of surprise me that it seemed like they were almost hesitant to admit and maybe they were telling the truth, but it, it seemed like no one wanted to admit that they were active on social media, right? They would use it, they would go on it, but most of them were saying, well, I don't post much, I don't participate much. So there's a definite sense that it's Maybe it's a toxic environment that they don't want to be a part of. Uh, but the only, I think the only person who said they, they contributed to a social media website was, was someone on Reddit because it's anonymous. So they're, they're part of it, but they're maybe on the lurking end of things. I think those comments from our students kind of give us some of the things that we want to think about if we're going to try and understand how digital media work and how they're changing politics. So on the one hand, there's this vast array of different sources that they can go to, many, many more than there would have been for people when I was their age, when there were just a few newspapers, just a few TV channels, some radio stations. But also, those channels are really quite different. So one of them mentioned Reddit, that's text-based people posting sort of in real time. YouTube, which is videos, people talking, filming things that stay and are available for a long, long time that may be contemporary, may not be contemporary. Instagram, which is image-based and just about short comments. Twitter, which is just 280 characters and so forth. So these channels are not just versions of older media. They're different kinds of media. And they make communication happen in very particular kind of ways. I think that's a really important issue that we'll pick up throughout the, the whole series, that they shape communication in some way, the way you say it, how you say it, and also how it feels to be listening to it, watching it, reading it. They have media scholars call it affordances, the ways in which the design of the platforms and the media system means you can do certain kinds of things, but also that you can't do certain kinds of things. It begins to shape the way people use those kinds of media. And from my point of view, what's important and interesting about that is how that then changes political communication, that the way people talk about politics, whether it's between friends, between strangers or political parties and movements, that's going to have to change. It's going to have to adapt to those affordances, the ways those different kinds of media work. And whichever kind of politics or whichever political movement can most quickly and 
cleverly adapt that media, that's going to be the ones that are most successful because they can use the means of communication that are shaping people's understanding, their knowledge and their ways of thinking about politics. So media systems change the way we think and talk about politics and digital media is doing that to us right now. Uh, but we also need to think about how we got here to this moment we're in. So we asked the Stanford-based scholar Becca Lewis about this. So of course my reference points are, are very grounded in the United States, so I'll be speaking mostly through that lens. But, you know, in the 1980s, you started to have the, the growth of hyper-partisan radio, and that came in the United States with certain deregulation efforts. And so you had figures like Rush Limbaugh becoming extraordinarily popular and really kind of interested not in open kind of, you know, public sphere style debate that we might strive for or think exists and instead is really uh, interested in kind of cultivating a sense of identity and loyalty and affective, you know, emotional or sentiment driven content with uh, his audience. And then kind of out of that in the 1990s, you had the growth of uh, cable news and you had the growth in particular of Rupert Murdoch's empire. So in the United States, that was Fox News and elsewhere. I know he has a ton of other media holdings, but really kind of Fox came to be this prominent force of, of right wing news and, and media. And I think you had absolutely those forces kind of moving onto the internet and being strategic. Um, you also had kind of newer entrepreneurs around the internet like Andrew Breitbart and Matthew Drudge, uh, kind of starting Breitbart.com and the Drudge Report. These are really big internet publications. And then at the same time as all of that and somewhat separately, you had uh, from the very early days of internet message boards, you had white supremacist groups building out their own message boards and their own spaces. And as early as the 1990s, building forums like Stormfront, uh, which was kind of the, the primary white supremacist forum for a long time. And I think one of the, the aspects of the internet that actually has kind of helped the growth of all of this stuff is that it's so much easier for ideas and communication to flow between these separate arenas than had previously been in the past. So I think Becca Lewis draws attention to a load of really important things there about how contemporary internet news and political culture didn't come out of nowhere, but came out of this pre-existing culture of talk radio, of the spreading range of outlets through cable news and so forth that was already getting quite partisan, that was already being quite divisive and changing the ways in which people thought and talked about their politics. And then how movements came in and saw the internet as a way in which they could do their own bit of that now that they had these new opportunities. But there's one really important dimension of that that I think we should stop and think about for a bit, which is that that period in the, from the 80s to the 90s as news outlets and cable television channels proliferate also sees a blurring between news and entertainment, between politics and show business and comedy shows and talk shows and so forth. And part of what's creating this very polarised way of talking and thinking about politics is the desire to make programmes that are compelling and entertaining, that grab your attention, that stir controversy in all kinds of ways. And part of what happened in that period was that people realised that entertainers could find they had a political platform. And politicians could find that they could be quite successful if they were entertaining. It's not a coincidence that today 
quite a number of world leaders, uh, often on the so-called populist side of things, have a background in the media, often in entertainment specifically. Uh, That goes back to the 1980s. Ronald Reagan was an actor, but of course he was a lifelong political activist as well. But Arnold Schwarzenegger came straight out of movie entertainment to becoming a politician. And Donald Trump comes out of reality TV to become a president of the United States. But it's not just in the US, in the Ukraine, for example. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky was a comedian, an actor who played the president on a TV show and then became president in real life. Comedians have become national leaders in Slovenia, in Guatemala, in Italy. The Five Star Movement that was prominent a few years ago was led by the comedian Beppe Grillo. So something really important and interesting is happening there as entertainment, celebrity and media all blur and bleed into news and into politics. But what the internet then does is massively increase the opportunities for people to develop different kinds of celebrity, build different kinds of entertainment platform, and that also includes political celebrity and political entertainment. And we asked Becca Lewis about that as well. Celebrity culture has become kind of a major, major factor on YouTube and on social media more broadly, that now there's so many opportunities for people to become quote unquote celebrities or as some scholars call them micro celebrities, right? It may not be Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie levels of celebrity, but it's people that have enough of a following. And what I found in researching these political celebrities was that a lot of them were using kind of the tactics of mainstream influencers and micro celebrities. And, and frequently even were getting products to sell through influencer marketing techniques, but they also were using the same techniques to sell their political ideas. And so they would adopt these uh, certain storytelling tropes, like talking about embracing far-right ideology in the same way that influencers give product testimonials. And so this is kind of a well-known advertising technique with uh product testimonials where you say, um, this product changed my life for the better before I, you know, had all of these things that were wrong in my life and the product fixed them in all of these ways. Um, people are doing the same techniques on YouTube with the embrace of white nationalism, white supremacy, certain, uh, misogynist worldviews. Uh, a lot of times they refer to it as taking the red pill, and will say, you know, my life has gotten so much better since I took the red pill. I have opened up and seen the way that the world actually is. And essentially what they're doing is a a testimonial for this particular ideology. And it's a really effective, essentially, marketing technique. So we'll talk a lot about the red pill uh, in later episodes. Uh, It's going to keep coming back. But the thing that Becca Lewis is pointing us to here that's really important is, is the way political ideas and arguments are spreading along with the influence of celebrities and micro-celebrities who are using influencer marketing techniques to sell brands and to sell self-improvement products, but also to sell ideas, political ideas, ways of thinking about the world. And I think that's really important because that's a very different way of thinking about what politics is and what it can, can do for you. It changes the way people evaluate and think about a political ideology or a set of political claims and it presents politics as something that we should adopt because it's going to give us a series of techniques or ways of living that will make us feel good that will enhance our our well-being and of course I'm all for people enhancing their well-being but that might not be the same thing as trying to address deep-rooted complicated problems of politics 
But all of that is just one part of the background that we want to kind of lay out in this first episode. The celebrity entertainment nexus and how that leads to this kind of micro celebrity marketing influencer style of politics. But not all political groups and movements cottoned on to the possibilities of this kind of political opportunity in the same kind of way. What we found in our research was that some political movements seem to be more effective at this, seem to have understood quicker how to move into this space and use these kinds of techniques to promote their politics. And one set of people who did that particularly effectively, that was on the far right of politics. So Matthew Feldman, he's a specialist in the history of fascism. He's director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right. So we asked him to talk about how that kind of politics was organising online. Fascists were very early adopters of technology. Back in the 1980s, when I was young, they were doing things like robocalls, and you could call an answer phone and get your daily message. Stormfront, which boasts over 100,000 members and is the largest such gathering, was founded, I think, in the, in the early 1990s, 1992, I believe. So this is something that is uh, has a long, long tail. Um, I absolutely believe that it gives what we might talk about the radical right today, three things that it didn't have during the Cold War and frankly, the period of what Dan Stone calls the anti-fascist consensus, uh, which is kind of broken down, I think, since the 1990s. One of those is it gives potential anonymity, which kind of speaks for itself when we see the types of trolling, the types of, of, of material gets uh, sent, sent around the world. It gives also a type of permanence where it really can be hard to get rid of those extremist materials, even sometimes to move them onto the fringe small platform. So you, if you're looking for a message or, dare I say, an instructional manual, you're likely to be able to find it if you look hard enough. But I think the most important thing is that it brought a fascist activist together globally. Because remember, the stigma was such about fascism and the Holocaust for completely uh, apt reasons that you couldn't really go out your front door and say, I'm a fascist. Who else shares my, my views? You could. There was potential stigma or even penalties for doing that, certainly in countries that had a fascist uh, past like Nazism and, and Italian fascism. But it allowed you to be able to connect with somebody in Australia or New Zealand or Canada who might have the exact same ideas as you that you don't know whether the people on your street shared them. And I think that global fraternity has been something that is now being taken up historically in thinking about fascism as a transnational phenomenon. So in that sense, it's very hopeful that we might even have a kind of a unified agenda of the way in which ultra-nationalists can also be internationalists or transnationalists might be a better word. And that is a, 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 something of a paradox that's always been at the heart of fascism and the far right. So it might seem surprising and unexpected, but actually there's kind of an overlap between the sort of celebrity influencer culture of online politics that Becca Lewis was talking about and some of the aspects of the kinds of ideologies shared by the people Matthew Feldman is talking about. I think if, if you had to come up with two words to define fascist self-perception, it'd be something like black priests, which is a term that Evola favored, or warrior monks. They saw themselves as a mix of exactly what you described, manly, virile, even chauvinistic or misogynistic values, and at the same time, a spiritual side, which was for them the most important distinction between communism and capitalism. They saw them both, and, and, and a lot of this does get into anti-Semitism, but they saw both as materialistic, and that fascism was a spiritual alternative. What we see from people like Julius Evola, and in particular, somebody like Savitri Dev, 
Ravi, who brings in the sort of Hindu traditions as well, is that when that stuff sounds to us like it's coming from a, another planet, those are extreme examples of something that is in fact at the heart of fascism, which is a particular form of tribalism, which usually is more than just a nation and more than just a race, but is seen as this kind of spiritual collection of a a people, quote unquote, tradition. It's precisely what's so seductive and so potentially dangerous about fascism. So what we found online then was a connection between, on the one hand, the way in which these platforms helped new people come through and become new kinds of ideological entrepreneur, new kinds of online political celebrity, drawing on previous styles of news, entertainment and partisan news radio, to cultivate new kinds of online celebrity. But there's a connection between that and the ways in which some of the far-right movements have been organising for a long time online, developing a style and an approach and an appeal that promised people more than just politics and political change, but some kind of salvation, something that would be spiritually beneficial to them, something that was a kind of therapy that would make them feel better about themselves and about the world. So those are just two parts of the puzzle so far. Another part is the ways in which on digital communication, ideologies, political positions, political ideas kind of flow and connect in new ways. The lines that divide sort of factions that we might be used to in politics get eroded. They fall away and positions become much more fluid, blending and mixing with each other. So, for instance, there's also a link between some of the kind of nationalistic far-right sorts of politics and a certain kind of cyber culture libertarianism. We talked with Florian Kramer about that. He's a writer, a photographer, a filmmaker, and also a theorist who teaches and researches 21st century visual culture and art and design school in Rotterdam. Here's what he had to say. I think what we really observed uh, in the past 10 years is a convergence of, you could say, radical libertarian and extreme right uh, positions and subcultures. That's what really happened. And... Um, and the traditional um, association of libertarian culture was it's rather left-wing than right-wing. Even in the 1990s, if you, for example, think of cyber libertarianism, internet libertarianism, the roots of, for example, internet civil rights organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundations were also libertarian. And very often that was lumped together with political left-wing positions also for the reasons that, that there often were collaborations or let's say people could find, for example, uh, if you take something like the open source movement or the um, um, movements against internet censorship, uh, this would be typical issues where people from the political left and from, the, from, from libertarianism could unite and, and have joint positions. Uh, the pirate parties in, in Europe are a really good example of a uh, kind of joining of forces of libertarians and left-wingers. And what happened here, for example, in the Netherlands is that the um, pirate party disintegrated and it disintegrated in, into their main members, actually the, the members of um, uh, who were the leading members, uh, defecting to an intersectional radical left party and uh, defecting uh, to a neo-fascist uh, alt-right party that is now a very strong party in the Netherlands. So I think that this phenomenon of libertarianism uh, mil becoming militant right converged with the subculture in the internet that was, let's say, militantly hedonist, militantly anti-political correctness, militantly uh, anti-censorship, so that issues like, for example, um, feminist critique of sexism in using pornographic memes 
etc. would immediately create this backlash. And basically, this this kind of backlash, yeah, for which I think reactionary is, would be a good term, then created a kind of united uh, front or united discourse among people who came from libertarian positions and people who came from, from extreme right uh, uh, positions. And that I would describe as the kind of upcoming, as, as the, the defining moment of, you know, what then was the alt-right in 2016 as these um, joint forces of traditional um, extreme writers like like uh, Richard Spencer's and and who by the way also also was an ex-libertarian and then the kind of internet I don't accept any rules um, uh, hedonistic um, factionally libertarian subcultures of fortune etc. Okay, so we're juggling lots of things here. We're trying to keep in mind the way digital media creates all these new kinds of platforms, the ways in which it gives opportunities for new kinds of celebrity that become a basis for pushing a politics that is kind of like celebrity influencer culture in some kind of way, how that connects to the far right and to libertarianism. Now we want to add something else because there's also a link to the culture of video games. That's right. So I've already mentioned Gamergate, this moment in 2014 when groups of gamers, many of whom are interacting on sites like 4chan or Reddit, see themselves as rising up against uh, feminists and so-called social justice warriors who they think are ruining gaming culture. Uh, So the politics of of gender come in here in a big way. Uh, And we asked Annie Kelly about that. She did her PhD on online anti-feminism here at UEA. Uh, and now she's working with a podcast called QAnon Anonymous uh, and has thought and written a lot about all kinds of online political phenomena. Uh, and here's what Annie had to say. As a slightly, as a kind of part of the, the slight new school of anti-feminism or digital anti-feminism, I should say, around 2014, when there was this incredibly kind of social, social networking of kind of these various anti-feminist, anti-progressive hubs, many of which had kind of restricted themselves to blogs and forums before and weren't particularly active on social media. Um, And there was this kind of, I think, a couple of drive um, to get them on social media to um, utilize the tools that social media gave them with kind of things like hashtag campaigns and stuff like that. And I think anyone in this kind of academic sphere will kind of like note Gamergate as being a really successful one where lots of kind of different anti-feminist sort of wings sort of mobilized on social media to kind of create this incredible momentum. So we also talked to Whitney Phillips about this. She's a really important thinker and scholar um, on these topics. She works at Syracuse in New York State and her book This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things uh, is a key text for thinking about trolling and meme culture and how they've bled into and affected culture and politics more broadly. Um, Anyway, here's what she told us. You know, when I first started researching 4chan, particularly its B board, at the time, the B board, the random board, was the sort of infamous hotbed for where where all of this subcultural trolling was taking place. And there was a great deal of identity antagonism that was happening on that site, that that a particularly uh, anti-black identity antagonisms, and there were lots of other bigotries that were happening too. But the thing that was unique about that particular moment was that trolls on that site were really actively forwarding what they described as an ideology of lol nothing matters. That they were really, really insistent that they didn't actually mean anything they were saying. They were trying to extract what they described as lols. So L-U-L-Z, essentially laughter derived at the distress of a laughed at victim. 
And so they would descend upon sort of hot button issues because that would be what made people angry. And so they would make this defense that they're not actually racist, they're playing racists on the internet in order to extract these lulls and then they thought it was very funny. And it should go without saying that that's a very problematic and very privileged position to take. They still were saying terrible racist things, they still were disproportionately targeting marginalized and underrepresented groups. That's what they were doing, the racism was there. They, though, professed to have a different relationship to it. Over time, that attitude of, I don't take any of this seriously, I don't have a politics, you know, there's the only reason to do anything as lulls, that started to change. And it started to change in 2013, 2014, right around the time that Gamergate became a prominent sort of case study of prolonged harassment in the United States. And Gamergate, essentially, it's a long and complicated and very infuriating story, but it essentially boils down to people mad that there was diversity in the games industry. And then anybody who, you know, supported diversity in the games industry, the horror, would be targeted in a just an, an enormous way. It was devastating to, to people who ended up in the crosshairs of that. And Gamergate was oh, often, it was centered on, it was organized around, it was associated with 4chan and regardless of how much irony they might have, participants might have brought to some previous attacks, Gamergate was when you started to really see bigotry as an ideology that people actually professed to have, that, that it was something that they believed. And before, you know, whether or not they were just trolling about this, they at least said that they didn't believe the things that they were doing. They just said it was for the lulls. How much you want to believe them, I don't know. But that was the ethos of the site. Gamergate was when that shifted. Gamergate was when it started to attract people or activate in people this idea that bigotry is a viable ideological position to hold in the world. And the more that became dominant within this particular space and subculture, the more like-minded people were attracted to that space. And simultaneously, the more people who were truly in it for the lulls and like they wanted to play a racist and have fun with racism, but they didn't actually want to do racism, they started to then kind of age out. They left. And then the space became more and more associated and magnetic to people who actually adopted uh, bigotry as, a, as an ideology. So then this is all happening as, as the Trump, you know, as the 2016 election cycle starts getting underway. So the more this site was being referenced in news articles and promoted essentially by people outside of the subculture and outside of the space, it became even more of a, of a billboard for people who really identified with this particular way of being in the world. And so over time, because of all of those reasons, that site and, and the B board kind of stopped being the hotbed. It moved over to the politics board poll. And, and, and then, you know, there you didn't have people pretending to hide behind lulls anymore. And, and some of them may have been some of the same people who had been there in 2008, 2009, 2010. It's impossible to know, but the ethos had really shifted from lulls as an aspirational register to racism as a viable way of being in the world. And that process took several years, but once it was really entrenched on the site, there was absolutely no turning back from there. So help me out here, because listening to yourselves and the guests, it sounds like something we should have been able to consciously recognize. So how has this been spreading and why? 
That's a good question. I mean, there's kind of two parts to it, right? There's there's what Florian Kramer and Whitney Phillips are pointing us to, which is the kind of hedonistic side of the, the Internet, which can both be fun. You know, it can be cat videos or just sort of funny videos, uh, harmless pranks. But then it can also be the kind of uh, 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 trolling, uh, getting a rise out of somebody, making someone angry uh, can also be a way things spread. I mean, it's an emotional space a lot of the time. So there's another part of it, too, which is what we talked about before, the, the affordances of media, how they work, how they work as, as uh, their technical capacities, what they do to the content that we post, how it moves or doesn't move. So we talked to Hugo Leal about that. Uh, he is a, a quantitative and statistical researcher who has been looking at networks and how they function and how they relate to online politics from his base at Cambridge University. The diffusion of ideas is, is kind of limited by the reach of, of the people who spread them, the networks where they circulate, and their overall appeal or virality. S sometimes it sounds like a meta-conspiracy theory, but when we have one very connected or very well-connected people in networks with billions of, of customers, which is the word I use for user or creator, in reality, they are customers. And so it seems obvious that reachability, this concept of reachability must be uh, redefined. The only place where this happens is the web and, and, and more specifically in social media platforms such as um, Facebook, which extend the reach of, of social networks to the globe. There is no doubt whatsoever that the Internet, the web and, and, and social media work as the main diffusion uh, mechanisms. So it, it's all connected because we are uh, all connected. And we found, actually, we found some specific effects. In most countries, there is a negative correlation between consuming news on social media and absolute rejection of conspiracy theorizing, for example. And this was particularly significant in some countries, such as uh, the US. When I was writing the script, I decided to unpack social media as I said, and made a, a follow-up question about each platform. So we do have, we did have some interesting association associations between social media platforms and conspiracy theory uh, beliefs. Specific social media platforms, for example, consuming news from uh, YouTube was associated with the adoption of anti-vaccine beliefs in the US and climate change denial in, in Britain, for example. So there's certainly certainly a correlation that's more than correlations to causation. There were several. First, there was the level of belief, general level of belief in all kinds of conspiracy uh, theories, but specifically those who can be used and or weaponized for political and or economic purposes. These are, for example, migration-related conspiracy theories, health-related uh, conspiracy theories, climate change. And these are very different from others, pure conspiracy theories, such as the AIDS was, uh, its virus was created in a, in, a, in a lab and intentionally disseminated, or uh, even the Holocaust, Holocaust was, a, was a hoax. These uh, tend to sit still at the margins. Why? Because they are not being weaponized online for political and or economic purposes, at least to a great extent. As, as for the uh, the media consumption, so we had we had two uh, concurring questions. 
one was was trying to understand where where people were consuming, where people were getting their news. What we found there is that traditional legacy media is still relevant. So people are taking their news, are consuming news on TV, on radio, of course. But uh, the internet and some social media platforms are central in the news business. And this is important because that's now that that's not how social media platforms portray themselves, present themselves, and they avoid this qualification uh, as publisher and as media in order to uh, avoid being accountable and uh, avoid being liable, for example, uh, because someone posts content that could put the, the platform in, in trouble. But most people in most countries are getting their news from the internet and specifically from social media uh, platforms. Here, Facebook takes the lead by far, but others such as YouTube and Twitter are very uh, relevant as well. And then when you, when you combine these uh, uh, attitudes and habits, uh, with uh, conspiracy theory beliefs, you see that in some instances there is a significant effect of some social media platforms on conspiracy beliefs. And here YouTube is, is a very problematic one. And to be honest, with uh, 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 and set the records uh, straight, is not a social media platform thing because, for example, Twitter seemed to have a corrective effect. So the opposite effect, YouTube and, and, and Facebook were uh, particularly negative in, in this aspect. So we're really covering quite a lot of ground here. Yeah, but it's important to get a kind of overall high-level sense of the territory before we dive into more detail. And, and maybe just to complicate things a little bit further, all of this stuff about technologies, platforms, how they might drive certain kinds of conspiracy theorizing, how they might facilitate the spread of media. Um, I think it has to be put in a social context too. We have to think about people and their relationships and their feelings. Um, and that's why we spoke to Claire Birchall. She works at King's College London and she's written great stuff on data and surveillance uh, and also on conspiracy. Uh, she makes some really important arguments about how to understand all of these phenomena. I'm a little bit wary of sort of technological determinist answers that position conspiracy theorizing as a direct result of platform affordances. Because, you know, not least because we know a lot about how um, conspiracy theories were actually more popular pre-20th century, actually, when they were considered orthodox knowledge rather than heterodox knowledge. So there are lots of um, historians who make that point. But it's true that digital communication technologies have helped conspiracy theorists to find each other, you know, to share ideas and to form what we might call counterpublics based on non-traditional forms of research and ludic play. I think that's a kind of nice way of <laughs> talking about what conspiracy theorists do. But it is true to say that conspiracy theorists are more visible, for sure. And we know that this is sort of assisted by radicalizing algorithms, though, of course, you know, there's a lot of scholarly debate about that and about how it works or how it doesn't work. And not least because algorithms are black box technologies that platforms don't even share with researchers. So how can we really tell? But there is one feature of conspiracy theorizing, this um, feature of, you know, the, the idea that everything is connected. And that 
obviously also characterizes our experience of the internet. So that's the way that hypertext was originally sort of celebrated and talked about. And obviously it's the, our experience now of surfing the net for hours and hours and hours and leading on to more and more content. But I think that there is a counter argument to that too, because increased use of encrypted messaging groups, uh, the use of firewalls and censorship in certain countries, and the existence of dark web and deep web spaces introduced friction into that idea that everything is connected because, you know, clearly everything is not connected for everybody all of the time. And actually the internet is a variated and very stratified space. So we might want to sort of maybe think about that a bit more. Um, but I think what it is, is the crowdsourcing abilities of the internet that have been so good for projects like Wikipedia or open source software. It's this that's really catalyzed on by conspiracy theorizing. And that's always been true. So the earliest conspiracist bulletin boards like Illuminate um, in the 1980s and the conspiracy news groups that I studied in the 1990s, um, you know, they were, they were spaces for collective questioning and research, but they didn't have social media to draw attention to them and, and to get traffic to their activities. So they were much less visible. You know, you really had to go out of your way to find conspiracist content. It was very niche. Um, but now it can arrive in your feed simply because a friend that you haven't seen from school posted it or because, you know, one, you once looked up adrenochrome and then you're <laughs> endlessly going to get hits on that or you're just curious about some fake news clickbait. One way of thinking about it is that there's a strand of conspiracy theorizing that comes out of 1960s counterculture and the sort of literary, you know, the sort of postmodern literary culture of DeLillo and Pynchon and people like that, where we get, you know, sort of that sense of creative paranoia that feeds into certain subcultural understandings. And so conspiracy theory is sort of a cool slacker aesthetic throughout the 80s and 90s, really. You have to be slightly careful about that because although it was being taken up in popular culture like The X-Files, obviously, and Dark Skies and other shows at the time and lots and lots of um, you know 1970s film which was very serious but then in the in the 90s it becomes much more playful I think that that what happens in the on the in the internet news groups is that there is this sort of interrelationship between that popular cultural sphere and what they're thinking about so so in the Diana conspiracy theory news groups that I was looking at there were constant references to popular cultural text as a way of sort of trying to prove that things aren't always as they seem. So it's like a general kind of backdrop, I suppose. But I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer your question other than thinking about that. I mean, it feels to me like the news groups seemed much more committed and serious <laughs> than the popular cultural texts of the 90s, which seemed very playful. But we also, at the same time in the 1990s, have the Unabomber Manifesto. You know, we've got the Turner Diaries doing the rounds. So it's it, there's, a, there's a dark streak to conspiracy theorizing at the same time as that popular cultural celebration. And I think the internet sort of reflects both of those things at the same time, as it still does. You know, we still get playful, ironic, posting conspiracy theory content now, but that's much... That's Pay, you know, we don't pay as much attention to that because we're so worried about the far right, con you know, sort of connotations of it, I think. So this is all very confusing. 
Do you think we can summarize this? I can have a go. I think what we've been trying to say in order to make sense of how digital media is remaking politics, we need, first of all, to think about how older kinds of media affected things, but also how politics and political ideas have affected the way people use communications technology. So the question is, what's different about digital media versus other media when it comes to politics? The first thing is access. It's just much easier for anyone to enter into the public sphere, set up their stall there, say what they think, and make a living from it. People can make money from their YouTube channel. They can make money from people paying them to put content on their Medium post or Substack or whatever. They can make a decent living from it. So new kinds of people can come in and become political, ideological entrepreneurs. The platforms for users enable people to access a really broad spectrum of opinion, far broader than they could. As Matthew Feldman was saying, it was once upon a time difficult if you wanted to find very far-right extremist content. Now you can find it in one or two clicks online. So much more stuff is available to people if they want to find that kind of stuff. But the platforms, they're always giving their creators ongoing kind of information and data to help them tune their product to keep listeners and draw their listeners in. And listeners are being drawn in by the ways in which those platforms are using information about their likes and dislikes to feed them content they think they'll be more interested in. So what you're getting then is people receiving their political information in a way that's kind of personalised to them. And while that might seem nice and very convenient, there's something kind of very strange about that since politics is in part supposed to be about what's not personal to you. It's about how we're all going to live and how we're all going to deal with collective problems. So there's something difficult there, I think, going on. But that in turn leads people to form certain kinds of relationships with political information providers, I think, that are different to the way we might relate to politicians. Because they're celebrities in a certain way, because they're influencers who are telling us things that will make us feel better, make us feel strong, proud, happy, whatever it might be. Next thing, digital media is participatory. It's shareable. So it creates new ways for people to take part in spreading ideas, arguing about them, debating them, making their own videos, their own contributions to Reddit or Facebook or whatever, so they can feel kind of empowered and part of policy, which is good, but is also changing the ways people relate to everything. And lastly, one of the things that kind of most interests me is it means that you get different kinds of political arguments. The way people try and persuade each other to share politics becomes different because it's tied up with all this stuff about celebrity and entertainment, making people feel they're getting some kind of benefit from subscribing to your channel. So you get a lot more political arguments where people say, if you share this ideology, you might feel better. What Becca Lewis was talking about, influencer culture. You'll enjoy liking this politics. You'll, you'll have ways of thinking and being in the world that will improve your well-being. And we'll talk a lot more about that in later episodes. But lastly, as if it wasn't complicated and overblown enough, we need to remember that all of this came onto the scene when stuff was already going on in politics. Things were already in flux. So all the stuff that we know all the time, but we forget sometimes when we're thinking about politics, that traditional class politics is breaking down. There's a new kind of complexity to how people affiliate to political parties or don't affiliate to them at all. Things have become much more individualised in the way people think about their lives, themselves, their families and what they want from government and society. People aren't always citizens when they're thinking and doing politics. They're often uh, more like consumers and political parties treat them as consumers. That's been going on for decades. Then there's also all the big stuff that's happening, how globalisation is changing the ways people feel about nation states, becoming more passionately attached to them or less passionately attached to them. States can't do everything that they used to be able to do because they're caught up in these complex global flows of information and commerce and economics and finance. And the kind of social roles that might organise our sense of self, those are also becoming eroded. We don't expect to have the same job across our lives. So our identities that come from work are more fluid and are shifting in different kinds of ways. And 
the success of feminist politics and anti-racist politics has also overturned or at least threatened and undermined traditional hierarchies of status that people had. So all kinds of things are in flux. It's a really extraordinarily fluid situation. And in the UK, where there's decades of, of anti-politics feeling, anti-elite sentiments, resentment about MPs' expenses, about the Iraq war and so on, and a major financial crisis, in the midst of all that, digital media comes with all these new voices saying all these new things to say, I can explain it all to you, I can tell you what's really happening, pay attention to me and you'll be on top of things, you'll feel good about stuff. Digital media are really good machines for intensifying people's suspicion, hostility, anxiety and fear while promising them that if they like and subscribe, things are going to be great. I've got a reputation for explaining it to people, telling it like it is, come and like me. So in order to make sense of all of this, what are we going to need? Well, we're going to have to find out about ideologies, the kind of ideas and beliefs that define political, political movements and political parties. We'll need to know about rhetoric or how people use language and images to persuade, to convince, to, to win you over. I have to think about emotion and how online political communication appeals to our feelings. We'll also have to think about identity and the changing ways in which people define themselves and project identities online. And a huge part of a lot of social media is how it looks, its aesthetics, uh, its imagery, its style. The next time we'll start with the first of those, we'll talk about the internet and ideology. On this episode of Reactionary Digital Politics, you have been listening to... I am Whitney Phillips. My name's Claire Birchall. My name is Uglial. Matthew Feldman. My name is Becca Lewis. My name's Annie Kelly. My name is Florian Carlo. And thanks also to our students, Gareth, Dom, James, Lisa, Lauren, Max and Luke. You also heard from... Me, Rob Gallagher. Me, Rob Topinka. And me, Alan Finlayson. And me, Sophie Ladkin. The music was composed by Harriet Riley, produced by Tom Jacob, and production of the podcast was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the University of East Anglia and Birkbeck University, London. Don't forget to... Like, subscribe and share. Thank you.